Recording. Okay. So this is where I normally start the class. This is what you'll see up when you come in each day. Not this picture, but some picture, some astronomical picture. And this is the NASA website, uh, the photo of the astronomical photo of the day. And I think I've given you the list of that on your, did I give you that on your extra credit assignment? No, I did not. If you want to look at it yourself, it's, uh, what is it, AP? apod.nasa.gov slash apod. So you can access that there. And so if you want to listen to my podcast, you also have to pull up the picture separately. I should say that. I've had people confused with that. It's like, I'm hearing about the picture, but I don't see the picture. That's because some of these pictures are taken by NASA in which case they're public domain and anybody can freely use them. Some of them are taken by amateur astronomers, in which case they're not. And I can't just reproduce their pictures without getting permission from each individual astronomer who's used them. So in that case, I just provide the audio. You can go to this to actually look at the image to see what the image is of. That will pull up the current picture. So that's today's picture, which I'll talk about here in a minute. If you go down below, there's an archive there which you can click on and that'll go back through every picture if you want to go look at an older one. You don't need to go back through anything as of yet because I'm not going to cover, I'm not going to test you on anything there. But I am going to quiz you starting with today's picture. So when the quizzes come up, it'll start with May 20th's picture. But if you need to go back to the archives, you know, if you didn't look at them over the weekend and you want to go back and look at them, you can click on the archive link there and go back to that. Now today's picture is actually the sun you figure that one out? That's actually the sun. That's the sun taken in a specific color of light. So it's actually taken in the light of calcium and a false color image. We're looking here not at the surface of the sun and we'll cover the sun in a little bit. The sun really doesn't have a surface in as much as the earth has a surface. Right? If I drop something on the earth it lands and hits the surface and stops. If I were to drop something on the sun, it would continue. Well, first of all, it would get vaporized. But ignoring the fact that it gets vaporized, it would just keep traveling down through the sun. It would travel right through what we see as the surface, travel through that. There is no solid surface to the sun. Same thing with the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. There's no solid surface. We've sent a probe into the atmosphere of Jupiter. It just keeps sinking down until it finally gets crushed by the immense pressures. In this case, certainly it would get vaporized long before that. But what we're looking at is actually part of the atmosphere of the sun. So like the Earth has an atmosphere surrounding its surface, its solid surface, the visible surface of the sun, which you see when you go out there and look at most pictures of the sun or glance at the sun, you know, sunset, this is actually looking a little bit further up in the atmosphere. It's what we call the chromosphere of the sun. And what you're seeing is some evidence of activity of the, on the sun. You get this very interesting um, uh, sort of mottled shape. And you get some very bright areas. Now those bright areas, anyone ever seen pictures of sunspots? Right? Dark spots on the surface of the sun? Okay. That's what you're seeing here. When you, get out to the at, when you get out into the atmosphere, instead of being dark, they're actually some of the brightest areas. They're actually regions of a lot of energy and a lot of energy production on the sun. So they're actually producing a lot more energy and we do see those here as relatively bright objects. So this is what you would see if you were looking at a regular traditional image of the sun is what you would see as dark spots, sunspots on the surface of the sun. And that's where all the activity goes on. Now, 
we're fortunate or unfortunate right now to be on the very high end of the solar activity. Sunspot cycle, again I'll go through a lot of this in more detail when we actually talk about the sun, but the sunspots come and go in about 11 year cycle. So every, every 11 years we get a peak where we get a lot more sunspots than usual and then it will slowly fade down for four or five years and then it will bottom out and start going back up again. We're reaching about one of those peaks right now, which means there's a lot more sunspots than usual on the surface of the sun and a lot more solar activity. Solar activity isn't just interesting to look at on the sun, but it actually affects us here on Earth. When you have solar flares, solar flares, we had a couple nice ones not just a couple days ago that send a lot of material out into space. If those are end up directed at the Earth, those particles will interact with our atmosphere. Anyone ever seen the aurora? No? No? Seen pictures of it, hopefully, at least. Maybe, yeah. Gets a nice, you know, green shimmering curtains in the sky. Well, that's caused by the sun. Those are particles from the sun striking the Earth's atmosphere and causing it to glow. So the more active the sun is, the more particles it's sending out, the more intense the solar, the more intense the aurora will be. If it gets intense enough, it can actually cause disruptions in the Earth's magnetic field, can disrupt communications. If you get a real big flare sent right at the Earth, that can actually disrupt communications. Uh, the large, we actually call the largest of these coronal mass ejections. Again, we'll talk about this more when we get to the chapter on the Sun. But that's really sending big chunks of material, uh, big, big wads of material out. And we've had those occur and they, will, they can disrupt communications, cause some really nice aurora. You can get a good one, you can actually see the aurora down in Atlanta. Now, typically you don't see them. You see the aurora, you're looking at pictures from Alaska. You're looking at pictures from the northern part of Canada or Scandinavia or something. But you can actually get pictures in the southern, in the southern U.S. The most intense one that I know of or recorded was, let's see, about 1859. There was an intense coronal mass ejection where they actually were able to see aurora in Hawaii. So. Hawaii is pretty far south. Okay, it's not at the equator, but it's getting down there. You usually do not get the aurora down that far. So that was an extremely intense one, and that actually caused major communications issues at the time and disrupted, started fires in the telegraph wires. So what one like that would do today is a good question. You know, some of our electronics might survive. It might wipe, wipe a lot of electronics with that kind of energy pulse. So not something we can do much about. We have enough trouble controlling the Earth, let alone the Sun, right? Try to control the Sun, forget it. If it wants to send something in our direction, it's going to do, it can do so. So, but that's one of the things that we'll be watching at over the over the coming uh, months, as to see, you know, what kind of what kind of energy, what kind of flares will come out. Fortunately, it has to come towards the Earth. Most of the Sun isn't pointing towards the Earth, so if it's coming out this way, it's not going to affect us. If it's going on the back side of the Sun, it's never going to affect us. It's only those that are right around the central portion, if there was a flare coming, that would be directed towards the Earth. So, not that it's any flare that will do that, but anything that's in the Earth's general direction that could affect that. So, that's how I start out each class. I never know what it's going to be. I'm not associated with them. So, I don't know what they're going to put up. We get some nice pictures that apply to this class, which is just about anything in astronomy. We get some very unusual things that, you know, give me something different to talk about. But sometimes we get to jump ahead. Sometimes we get to go back and review. Sometimes we get to cover something that I wouldn't have covered otherwise. You know, we don't cover a lot on the planets in this course. I do have one unit where we talk about planets. But we do get to go and you know, sometimes they'll show pictures from you know, the messenger probe around Mercury or one of the Mars rovers and we get to get a little bit extra you know, current information in that way.
questions? Yes, yes, ma'am. Are you going to take our quizzes from like, the explanation they gave us? It'll be in the explanation or stuff that I gave you. Okay. So it could be in that explanation. It could be in stuff that I. It could be something else that I went on. A, I might have gone on a tangent too, depending on exactly what they did. <laughs> but the explanations are something certainly good to have read. And that's why I said, listen. If you listen to my podcast, something else might jog your memory yeah. too. But if you've done those two, I'm not going to pull something else completely random. It'll either be something I talked about, something we talked about in class mm-hmm. would be a possibility. Like if this was after. We talked about the unit on the sun. I might do something that we talked about, about the sun. But it was something specifically related to, to that image. Okay. All right. Otherwise, we are ready to start, I think, unless there are other questions. And we will start working our way through. We'll go through the chapters in order. So chapters 0 through 18, 19? Try to remember. Where does, where does this book end? Yes, chapter 0 is first. This does have a chapter 0. Chapter 18 is the last chapter. So we've got 18 chapters to get through. That's about three chapters a week we've got to try to get through. Uh, chapter 0, in this case, goes through a lot of information on sort of what you see in the, what you see in the sky. And you know, image here, you can see a little bit. You can see a little bit of the Milky Way there stretching through. I don't know if you can see the little bit of haziness stretching from the lower portion here up to the top. That's the Milky Way. That's our own galaxy, which we'll talk about completely in a separate chapter. But it's our galaxy as seen from inside. So it's, it took us a long time to really learn about our galaxy. It's not something we knew. Milky Way has been visible for you know, forever. right? As long as there's been humans looking up at the sky, they've been able to see the Milky Way. The Milky Way. But actually what it is and what our galaxy looked like was not something we really learned about until the last century until the 1900s, we didn't really know a lot about our Milky Way. And one of the ways you can think about that is you're trying to figure out what the Milky Way is like by sitting inside it. And that would be the equivalent to trying to figure out what Blocker Hall is like stuck inside it. Okay? You were born here, grew up here, you never left, the, you never left this room. How do you know what Blocker Hall looks like? Well, you can look, you got a few windows, you can look out and get an idea. You might be able to see some other buildings and say maybe it looks like this, but you know, how many floors does it have? Could you tell me? If you, you know, you've been outside, so you know, right? But if you've never been outside, how many floors does it have? How far down does it go? If you're confined to this, which is essentially what we are in our galaxy. Yeah? Well, we couldn't figure out if it had two floors or two Yeah, but, but how do you know there's not a third floor? Or a fourth floor? You could figure out where you were. Yep, but we wouldn't know that there's not 20 more floors on top of us. We could look at other buildings to compare. That's what we do with some other galaxies. And there are some measurements we can, we can make to sort of look through. We can use uh, different types of observations. You could use you know, x-rays to try to look through the wall, right? Well, we don't use x-rays in astronomy. We do. We observe them. But in terms of this, you'd look at radio waves, right? Radio waves penetrate the walls. You can still get a cell phone signal in a room, usually, unless they've got really odd, you know, shielding in it. You can typically get a cell phone signal, pick up a radio station inside a room. Well, they pass through a lot of the material in our galaxy that blocks out the rest of the light from behind it. So we can actually get some observations looking at looking in that way. So what we're really looking at in this chapter is just sort of a little bit on the early understanding of what the sky, what the sky was like. So trying to be able to understand the sky a little bit better. And what we're going to look at, the units of it, so broken down into the sections of the chapter, 
uh, the obvious view, what do we see? What does the Earth, what is the sky really like? Or how does it look to be? Which isn't necessarily how it is. We talk about our solar observations I just handed out. Right? We're talking about the sun rising and setting. Sun isn't really moving, right? We know that. We know that. The sun is appearing to move in the sky, but it's only moving because the earth is rotating in the opposite direction and making it appear to rise and set. But that took us, you know, a long time to come up with to be able to understand that the earth was actually doing the moving. It doesn't feel like it. You go walk out there, it doesn't feel like we're moving at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, which we are, because everything is moving at the same speed. So obvious view is just looking at that. We watch the sun move through the, through the constellations, right? Moves through the constellations of the zodiac over the course of a year. But it's not. It's really the earth orbiting around the sun, so we see the sun from a different perspective. So right now, you know, the sun is the table here. Now I see the sun against that. Well, a few months later, I'm over here, and now the sun is in a different part of the sky. Keep going around, it's going to be in another part of the sky. But it doesn't look like that to us here on Earth. And we'll look at that, the Earth's orbital motion, and we'll look at the moon a little bit, the moon and eclipses I want to talk about. And then we'll begin a big uh, key portion of the course is talking about measuring distances. That's a very tough thing. How do you measure how far away a star is? How do you measure how far away the sun is? Right? 93 million miles. Right? People know the number, recognize the number, but how, how do you get that number? How do we actually measure distances? It's not an easy thing. We can't go take a trip to the sun and come back and read our odometer and see how far did we go. Can't do the same thing with you know, any of the planets. And it gets even harder when you get further away. You're measuring galaxies, distant galaxies that are millions of light years away. So, we need methods to determine those distances, and we're going to start that out here, and we won't finish that till towards the end of the, end of the class. And then ending up with science and the scientific method, which is also usually the first lab that I'll do for tomorrow, looking a little bit about some, some numbers and using the using scientific notation and the scientific method. So what we know now, and we didn't know before, didn't know thousands of years ago, is that the Earth is average. So. We're no place special in the universe. That wasn't what they thought, not, that, not all that long ago. You know, it wasn't all the, only a few hundred years ago that still a lot of people thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. There were astronomers earlier than that, hundreds of uh, thousands of years ago, who suggested that perhaps the Earth moved. But none of that really got accepted until the time of the Renaissance. So in the 15, 1600s, that we began to understand really that the Earth is moving. But we're no place special in the universe. We're a planet that's orbiting a star. The star is orbiting around the galaxy. And the galaxy is orbiting around with other galaxies. So we're not any place, we're not any place special. What do we mean by the universe? Universe is everything. All space, all time, all matter, all energy. So it sort of begs the question when you start talking about you know, multiple universes, how can you have a multiple universe when the universe is everything? So the universe, everything that we can see, anything we see when we look out is part of the universe. And astronomy is the study of that. So astronomy is really the study of everything, in essence. Astronomy is really one of the most general of the sciences in terms that it covers everything. We'll look at, dur during the course of the class, we'll look at things from physics, talking about gravity. We'll look at chemistry, 
We look at biology at the end of the class when we talk about life in the universe. Geology, when you study the Earth, study the planets. You know, in order to be able to understand them, we need to know something about geology. So any of the sciences, we need to know something about in order to understand astronomy. Um, which doesn't necessarily work the other way. You, know, you can't have an astronomer who doesn't know at least something about chemistry, but you could have a chemist who doesn't know anything about astronomy and that wouldn't affect their understanding of their topic. So astronomy is really one of the most general of the sciences covering really just about, covering just about everything that we look at in terms of science. Scales are incredibly large. Uh, even within the solar system they're pretty big. It takes uh, light travels uh, 300,000 kilometers every second. Quite a distance, right? 300,000 kilometers, 186,000 miles every second. And that, but even at that speed, it takes the light from the sun that we're looking at right now. Is it sunny out? Not really. If it was sunny out there, the light we'd be looking at from the sun left almost eight and a half minutes ago. So even traveling at that incredible speed, something nearby like the sun still takes eight minutes. The light from the sun still gets to us eight minutes later. Meaning that if the sun had blown up eight minutes, eight and a half, or seven and a half minutes ago, we still got one minute before we'd even know it. The sun had disappeared magically, we still would have to wait that long to find out about anything. That works the rest of the universe too. If we look at the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, right, a little over four light years away. Well, if it, if it disappeared, no reason it should have, but if it had disappeared four years ago, we're still not going to know about it for a few months. So when we look at these incredible distances and the incredible times, you're always looking back in time when you're looking out in space. We see the sun as it was eight minutes ago. We see Alpha Centauri as it was for a little over four years ago. We see the Andromeda Galaxy, which is the nearest large galaxy to our own, as it was a little over two million years ago. What does it look like now? Give me two million years. When the light gets here, I can tell you. But I have no, there's no way to tell you. There's no way to magically transport faster than light that we've been able to come up with yet you know, to tell what, the, what something looks like right now. We see everything as it was in the distant past. Now in this class, we go and we go way out and study some of the most distant objects in the universe. We're talking about things as they were before the Earth formed. So we see things that are 10 billion years old. Well, the Earth's only been around about five, four and a half billion years. So we're seeing things as they were long before the Earth even formed. And that light has been traveling that incredible amount of time to get to us. Now one of the units that we use is called the light year. The light year is about 10 trillion miles. Light year, even though it has time in it, has nothing to do with time. It actually is a distance. And it is the distance light travels in one year. So that's how far light travels. So it's a light year, even though it says year and you think of it as a time, it doesn't have anything to do with the time. It's really a measurement of distance. How far away something is in light years. Um, Alpha Centauri is about four light years away. Sirius, one of the brightest stars in the sky, is about eight light years away. Means it's taken the light eight years to travel for us. It's a measure of its distance. Each of those light years is about 10 trillion miles. If you can imagine 10 trillion miles, good for you because I can't. 
I can see the number, I know what the number means, but I can imagine that as much as I can imagine ten trillion dollars. You know? I don't have any con ten dollars I can understand, right? Ten dollars makes sense. Hundred dollars maybe, you know, thousand, but when you start talking trillions of dollars, I got no clue. I can, I can, I can see the numbers, I can work with them, but I, I can't, don't want you to think I wrap my head around them any better than you can. If you can, that's great, I hope you can, but I, 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 don't, I can understand the number, I can work with it, but in actually being able to comprehend really what 10 trillion miles is, and that's just one light year, that's close, that's our own solar neighborhood, that's not far away, that's very, very close to us. Now when we look out at space, here we're looking at the constellation of Orion, one of the brightest constellations in the winter, one of the ones people can usually recognize. Anyone seen Orion or been able to? One of the ones, one of the ones usually people can actually recognize. It's got four bright stars and sort of a, a rectangle outlining the body of the hunter and then three bright stars as the belt. So looking something like this, very bright red star um, in the upper left-hand side as you're looking out at it. And that's the star Betelgeuse. It is a very red star. It's telling us something about its temperature, that it's a cool star. The other star that we see, Rigel, is uh, diagonally opposite to it, is a, very, is a bluish star. And it's telling us it's a much hotter star. So we're going to learn that the temperature that we see of the star, we can determine the temperatures by looking at the colors of the stars. The redder it is, the cooler it is. The bluer it is, the hotter it is. Seems backwards, right? We always look at red at hot and blue is cold. But if you turn on a flame, look at a candle flame or you know, a gas flame, where's the hottest portion right down towards the burner? It's blue, right? Then it gets oranger and redder as it gets further away. So the hottest temperatures are actually blue. Cooler temperatures will be seen as red. So Betelgeuse is the, actually the coolest of these stars. Rigel the beta star here, not actually named as Rigel on this, is actually one of the hotter stars. But really what I'm trying to show you in this image is that when we look at Orion, we only see it as it is because of our location in space, where we happen to be. It would look quite different if you were at other places because we only get, when we look out at the sky, it looks like a great big sphere, right? You go on and look at the sky at night, it looks like a great big sphere. Everything's the same distance away, right? But it isn't. There's actually three dimensions there. There are stars are at different distances. Meaning that this star, the stars in the belt of Orion, this one in the middle is actually quite a bit further away than the others. And not just, you know, a few feet or a few inches, we're talking hundreds of light years further away. So it's way beyond them. So if you were to travel out in space towards the constellation of Orion, right? You're not just going to pass through this grouping of stars, but if you were out here all of a sudden, well now you'd have two stars in Orion off in this direction, a couple in this direction, a couple in that direction. So the constellations that we see are not the same constellations you would see anywhere else in the universe. Yes, you would see them. If you go to Mars, guess what? They're all going to be exactly the same. We're talking about traveling hundreds of light years away. If you could travel out that distance, you might see some of the stars in one direction and some in the other you'd have a completely different pattern that you'd see on the sky. And that's because the sky is really three-dimensional. We see the sun, we see the moon, we see the planets out there, we see the stars, but the moon's the closest, right? Then you've got, some of this, you've got the sun and the planets that are closer, and you've got the stars that are much further away. You're collapsing all of that three-dimensional three 
existence of space down into a flat plane. That's the way we see it. So that's the way we see it projected on the sky. That's not the way it is in real life. Now sometimes it is, sometimes you do see that. Some stars are relatively close to each other. Here you have a couple that are about at the same distance. Uh, the Big Dipper, right? That's the other one people usually know. Big Dipper and Orion is usually the one. Those are the ones people can identify. Um, the Big Dipper is actually um, seven stars. It's actually part of a constellation. Big Dipper really isn't a constellation itself. It's part of the Great Bear, Ursa Major. But it's seven stars. Five of those stars are very close together in space. And the two at the ends are not. So if we could come back, they're actually moving in slightly different directions. If you could come back in, you know, 100,000 years, the Big Dipper won't look like itself anymore because those two stars are moving in opposite directions and will slowly dis distort the shape that we see today. That's not something that's going to happen in our lifetime or in you know, multiple lifetimes, but over astronomical times, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, it'll look quite different than it does today because the stars are all slowly moving through the sky. We can measure that motion, but it's not something that's visible in terms of disrupting the constellations or making them look different that we would notice on a very short time frame. Now, as I mentioned, we've put all of these on, on, a, on a sphere here. This is how we imagine things. This is actually the view of the universe thousands of years ago. There's the Earth at the center and the great celestial sphere surrounding it. Except they would have had many more spheres. They would have had a, not only a sphere, not only the sphere of the Earth and the sphere of the stars, but in between that you would have had to have a sphere for the Sun, the Moon, and each of the planets. The five planets that were known at the time, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So you would have had all those spheres together to try to explain the motions. The celestial sphere is how things appear to be in the sky. Not how they really are, but we imagine everything from all that three dimensions pressed onto the surface of a sphere and there's the Big Dipper. Also up north is Cassiopeia. Looks like a W or an M depending on the time of year. Depending on whether it's right side up or upside down. And some of the other constellations, often the ones you know, right? We've heard of Gemini, Pisces, Virgo, Sagittarius. Right? Everybody's heard of those ones, right? Those are the constellations of the zodiac, the horoscopes. Now, horoscopes aren't science. But they do have a scientific origin in terms of why those constellations are so well known. That's actually the path the sun takes is through those constellations over the course of the year. So the sun will appear to travel through a set of 12 constellations. One of the labs I usually have you do later in the semester is go through and use the starry night program and map out where is the sun going to be? Now where is the sun? When does it enter and leave each constellation? So those are, for example, Gemini, Pisces, um, Virgo, and Sagittarius would be ones that the sun would appear to pass through over the course of a year. So it would make a path like this around and down and then Virgo's on the backside coming back there as it loops around the, around the sun. The other ones you probably haven't heard of as much. I don't, you may have heard of Cassiopeia. If you studied mythology you probably heard of Cassiopeia, right, from Greek mythology. Uh, Cassiopeia, Andromeda, Perseus are all up in that same portion of the sky. And Lyra, maybe not, Southern Cross, there's a total of 88 constellations that are visible in the sky. We don't see all of them from here because there's part of the sky that we never see way down here that's always blocked out by the Earth from our point of view. So we never get to see some of those. But we get to see, a, we get to see the majority of them. So 
what we call the celestial sphere is a way of representing the way things look in the universe. And that is, in order to use that, we use that to determine then positions. So we measure positions on the Earth, right? Latitude, longitude. How far are you north or south of the equator? That's the latitude. How far are you east or west of Greenwich, England? That's the longitude. Well, if I give you those coordinates, I give you a latitude and I give you a longitude, we can find any position on the surface of the Earth. So we can say exactly where Harrisburg is and give it exact numbers. We do the same thing on the sky. So in order to figure out the positions on the sky, we have to do something similar. We have to come up with a latitude, measuring north or south, not of the equator of the Earth, but of the celestial equator. If you take the Earth's equator and just imagine it expanding out into space, it's going to cross that celestial sphere at some point. That will become the celestial equator. And we can then measure things are either north or south of the celestial equator. So we can measure a latitude very easily. We make a similar uh, position for longitude. Longitude on the Earth is measured by convention from Greenwich, England. Doesn't have to be that position, that's just what we have agreed to. as where we agreed that we're going to measure the zero point. Could be anything. And in fact, hundreds of years ago, there were lots of different meridians. British used the one through London, right? French used one through Paris. Now everybody would use their own. Spanish would have used the one through Madrid. What's well, their meridian? That makes that makes it rather confusing when you're trying to do things internationally. Where are you exactly located? Well, you're measuring from this location or this location or this location. So at some point they went ahead and everybody got together. Britain, being one of the big biggest powers of the time, got got its way, right? So they got so the main meridian goes through Greenwich. England, and that's what we still use to this, to this day. But now in order to measure those positions, and I'm going to give you those coordinates in a minute, we need ways to measure them. And I'm going to take a little aside here and talk about measuring things in the sky. If I want to measure how far apart two things are in the sky, I can't really take a ruler and hold it up, right? I can't take a ruler and hold it up to the sky and measure, oh, they're five inches apart. Because that depends. If someone's got shorter arms, then they're going to look like they're not quite so far. You know, it's going to look different distances depending on your arms. How, how far out do you hold this? The only way you can measure them on the sky is by angles. The angle doesn't change. The angle is still the same. And we measure distances and sizes of objects in space on the celestial sphere in angles, in degrees. So a full circle, right? A right full circle is 360 degrees, right? That one, that one we know. But a full circle, through a degree, is pretty big on the surface of the sky, on the celestial sphere. The sun and the moon, about the same size. They're about half a degree in size. And those are by far the biggest objects that we see. So very big, very big, ob- very big. Uh, so a degree is a very big measure of angle. So we need to split them up. Now, the nice thing is that it follows the time uh, conventions in terms of measuring time. So you take degrees and you divide them into 60 parts, just like you divide an hour into 60 minutes, you divide a degree into 60 minutes, 60 arc minutes. So you have one degree here. Here's the full circle. There's one degree. Half of that would be the diameter of the sun or the moon. And you divide that, each of those degrees, into 60 parts. That's one arc minute. The sizes of the planets would be measured in arc minutes, a few arc minutes in size. 
moon would be 30 arc minutes, you might see the planets at a, few, at a couple arc minutes. So that's still not good enough. We need even finer measurements. And we take each of those arc minutes, so there's a degree, split that into 60 pieces here, and take one of those and split that into 60 pieces. This is that arc minute. Now we're splitting that into 60 pieces. Again, terminology makes it a little easier to remember because you go degrees, minutes, seconds instead of hours, minutes, seconds. And you get one second of arc. A lot of measurements that we make in astronomy are a second of arc or less. When you're trying to measure separations of stars, if you're trying to measure the size of a star, it's actually significantly less than one arc second. So taking this degree, you'd be looking at dividing this into 3,600 little tiny pieces. That's how small angles you're measuring because of how far away everything is. And that's what this last section is telling you here. The angular size of an object depends on its actual size and its distance away. Right? We're familiar with that because the building will look bigger or smaller depending on how close you are to it. Right? If you stand up right up against it, it looks gigantic. But if you go stand way across campus, it looks so much smaller. That's the angular size changing because of the distance. If you could stand further and further away, you know, take an airplane and fly over the campus, the buildings would look even smaller. If you imagine going to the moon and trying to look back, you might not even be able to see. Right? You wouldn't be able to see the buildings. You need a powerful telescope to be able to see the buildings. Just because you'd be looking at such tiny angles, your eyes would not be able to separate them. So I want to go over this now because you'll see this terminology come up again in terms of me measuring things in degrees, arc minutes, and arc seconds. And we'll see that coming up over, uh, the, the, over the class. All right, now I said I was going to give you these. The, this is what we use for measuring the coordinates on the celestial sphere. And those are what we call right ascension and declination. Declination is latitude. And that is uh, distance, angular distance, north or south of the celestial equator. How far are you north or south of the celestial equator? So how many degrees are you north or south? That's the easy one because that's the one you don't have to come up with any kind of convention. Everybody agrees on where the equator is on the Earth. You know, Britain didn't have one equator. France didn't have another equator. Spain didn't have a third one. Portugal and all the, all the areas of the time did not have their own equators. That was something everyone could agree on. The second one is the right ascension. which is much like longitude, which means you're measuring around the sphere. And it means you have to pick a zero point. You have to pick something that is going to be where you measure from. On the Earth, we measure from the meridian in Greenwich, England. On the celestial sphere, we measure right ascension from the vernal equinox. What's the vernal equinox, right? Heard the term before? That's actually the, where this, the position of the sun on the first day of spring. So that's where the sun would be on the first day of spring. 
So it was just something. It didn't have to be this point. You could have picked the autumnal equinox would be the other equinox. That one sounds right. The first day of autumn. You could have picked the summer solstice. You could have picked which would be the first day of summer coming up here next month. Could have picked the uh, winter solstice. But this is just the one that was selected. Is where the position of the sun is on the first day of spring, which is where the sun when the sun crosses the celestial equator. So it kind of ties into everything. Again, we're not going to go into any great details. I'm not going to be asking you to make any kinds of measurements with this. But I want you to know the general idea that we have declination is similar to latitude, right ascension is similar to longitude, and how they're basically measured. I'm not going to go into any great details in terms of making you do any calculations with them or anything else. But that's just what the terminology is so that if it comes up to mention something later on where I mention right ascension or declination, I just want you to have a basic idea of what is, what is used there. But right ascension and declination, very similar. Here you have the Greenwich meridian at longitude of zero degrees. So if you're measuring to Washington DC, you would be 77 degrees west of that meridian and you would be 39 degrees north of the equator. Those two lines where they intersect exactly targets any point you want to know. You can do that for any point on the Earth, right? If you want Harrisburg up here, well we're going to be a little bit further west and we're going to be a little bit further north of Washington. But we could do that for absolutely any point. If you want to find a point in South America, Africa, Europe, Asia around the other side, you can find any point on the Earth by giving it two coordinates, a latitude and a longitude. We can do the same thing on the sky. So we look at the celestial equator. I can tell you a declination. Is it positive? Is it north of the celestial equator? Is it negative and south? And how far is it from the vernal equinox? So here's the vernal equinox would be right here on the celestial equator and you measure around that. The only difference is just to make things difficult, astronomers love to do this, is they don't measure it in degrees. We measure longitudes in degrees on Earth. So longitudes and latitudes are both in degrees. Um, astronomers measure theirs, their longitude, their right ascension in hours. So 24 hours would be the same as 360 degrees. It would be 24 hours around the sphere. So you would say that something like Betelgeuse has a right ascension of 5 hours and 52 minutes and a declination of 7 degrees and 24 minutes of arc. So that's the only difference between them is that they're measured, the right ascension or the longitude on the sky is measured in time units instead of degree units. So we'll see a few more things where astronomers like to do things just, just, to keep us fully just to keep us fully confused. Or maybe just to keep us on our toes. All right. Question? No? Okay. Feel free to interrupt me if you've got questions. All right. The Earth's orbital motions. Again, it doesn't look like we're moving. But we are. It looks like the sun rises and sets. But what we really see, the first daily cycle, the first cycle that we see, most obvious one, right, is the night-day cycle. Right? Sun rises, the sun sets. We see that. That's not, as it was thought thousands of years ago, that's not the great spheres moving around the Earth. That's really just the Earth spinning on its axis. So the Earth spins around once every 24 hours actually every 23 hours and 56 minutes takes 23 hours and 56 minutes for one rotation of the earth. Let's see. For one rotation of the earth. 
So, not quite, not quite one day. What this means is that after you have, and that's what we call, that's what we call the sidereal day. Sidereal is relative to the stars. So one sidereal day is not something we use at all, typically. We don't measure things in 23 hour and 56 minute time intervals. Some people like to say, well that's where the leap year comes from. Actually, no. This is really how long it takes the Earth to spin around once. It takes 23 hours and 56 minutes. But the Earth isn't sitting still while it spins around each day. Right? It's not just standing here and spinning around in a nice little circle. It's moving around the sun at the same time. So what happens is that we have the Earth here. Here's the sun straight overhead or as close to overhead as it's going to be at, at noon at some time. One day later, one rotation of the Earth, this, the, the Earth is rotated one time, right? So this point is pointing in exactly the same direction, but it's no longer pointing towards the sun. It's now pointing out in space. That's 23 hours and 56 minutes later. Relative to the stars, that point on the Earth is back into exactly the same position. One sidereal day later. The, what, we, what we measure days by are solar days. Solar day is when we get the sun back into the same position, right? We measure from noon to noon. The sun gets back at its highest point in the sky. That's one day. So one solar day takes a few more minutes in order for the sun to get back to the same position. The earth is rotating. It's rotated this far. It's got to rotate a little bit more in order to be pointing back at the sun again. That takes about four minutes longer. Which makes our solar day 24 hours. So a solar day is 24 hours. A day, a day is 24 hours. That's exactly what we use. But a day that we use, our typical day that we use to measure, is not how long it takes the Earth to rotate once. There's a difference between the two because the Earth is not just sitting in one spot. If the Earth were just sitting still here and rotating and weren't moving, then 23 hours and 56 minutes later the sun would be back straight overhead again. Same thing again and again if the Earth were not moving. But because it's moving at the same time, it takes a little bit of extra time each day, four minutes, to make, to make it bring it back, bring the sun back into the same position. So, we're going to see that there are measurements of different measures of days, different measures of months, there are different measures of years. There are different ways of measuring each of these. The standard one that we use is the solar day. That is what we use for our time. So we keep time by solar days. We measure our time by the sun. That is exactly 24 hours. It's related to the rotation of the Earth, but is not exactly the same. Here's those constellations of the zodiac again, right? These are the ones. These are the ones that everybody knows by name, even if you don't identify them. If you can't identify them, most of them are not very prominent in the sky. Um, Gemini is. Gemini is relatively easy to see in the winter. Uh, Taurus is relatively bright as well. Aries is not much of a constellation to to see. Pisces, big constellation, but all very very faint stars. So nothing very prominent. Same with Aquarius and Capricornus. 
Um, Sagittarius and Scorpius are a little bit easier to see. And in fact, you can see those uh, shortly. If you look out after sunset to the south, if you've got a clear view of the south without too much light pollution, meaning if you're not um, north of Harrisburg trying to look through Harrisburg light to see it, you can actually see Scorpius and Sagittarius in the summer very low in the south right over the horizon. Scorpius is nice because it's one of those few constellations that actually looks like what it's supposed to. It's supposed to be a scorpion and there's a line of relatively bright stars in the distinctive hook tail of a scorpion. So you can see where it got its name. You know, there's Aries the ram. How'd you get a ram out of that, right? A couple stars. Most of the others, uh, Virgo, isn't, Virgo and Libra aren't all that bright. Leo isn't, Leo isn't too bad. Cancer is very, very faint. Uh, so only a few of them have relatively bright stars. But they were some of the earliest constellations actually named because they were important to early astronomers because this, these are the constellations that the sun and the planets all pass through. So even though there might not have been a lot of bright stars there, it was an important constellation because the sun and the, the, sun and the planets appeared to pass through it. And those are what we call the constellations of the zodiac. Those are the 12 constellations. Technically 13. There's actually a 13th one over, over here that we pass through. If you're, if you're a Scorpio, this, the sun only has like five or six days that it actually passes through Scorpio. Most of the time it actually spends in Ophiuchus, which is another constellation nearby. So there's technically 13 constellations that the sun will pass through over the course of the year. So that's one of the labs I'll have you go through later. We'll actually look at it on the Starry Night program so you get to see it and see how the sun moves through, moves through these. The path that it's called, this path that it follows, is called the ecliptic. That is the apparent path of the sun on the sky. So the ecliptic is where the sun appears to move on the sky. It's really the path of the earth. Right? The earth is really the thing doing the moving, not the sun, but it is the path of the earth, the path of the earth or the apparent path of the sun that we see moving through these constellations. So that's what we see over the seasonal, seasonal changes of the positions of the sky. And that's why you can't see all the constellations all the, all the year. If you're looking at certain times of year, the sun might be in the direction of Taurus. Well, if the sun's over here, if the earth's over here looking towards the sun and Taurus is here and Aries, you're not going to see them, right? They're there, they didn't go anyplace, but they're out when the sun is. It's a little bit too bright to be able to see them. Sun's a little bit bright. So you really can't see any, you can't see these. What do you see? You see the constellations that are on the other side. So that's why coming up now, constellations like Taurus and Gemini are blocked out by the sun, very hard to see, very close to the sun. But constellations like Scorpius and Sagittarius will actually be visible. Six months later, it'll be the other way around. You can't see Scorpius and Sagittarius, but you'll be able to see Taurus and Gemini much better. So that's why you can only see certain constellations at certain times of the year. Now, that doesn't apply to all of them. There's some constellations you can see all year round. Uh, Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, is one of them. Right? doesn't matter what time of year you go out, you can always see that. There are some constellations that are very close to the pole of the Earth that are always visible. So the sun never gets up close to those and never is able to block them out for the entire day. We, they're always visible. All right. More about the Earth's orbital plane. The ecliptic is that Earth's path. And it's tilted, right? 23 and a half degrees, hopefully a number you probably heard at some point back in high school. The Earth's axis is tilted at 23 and a half degrees. That changes 
the positioning of the sun because sometimes we're tilted back and away from it during the winter. Sometimes we're tilted forward towards the sun in the summer. And that is what we call, that is what the cause of the seasons is. The, the Earth is in an elliptical orbit. We'll talk about that in the next chapter. An elliptical orbit means sometimes it's a little bit closer to the sun and sometimes it's a little bit further away. But that has nothing to do with the seasons. The seasons are actually caused by the tilt of the Earth. Because if you actually, if you do the calculations and you find out when the sun is closest to the Earth, the Earth and the sun are closest together, beginning of January. That's when the Earth and the sun are the closest. A couple million miles closer than they will be in the summer. You'd think, it would be, I think that would make it warmer, right? But it's only a few million miles out of almost 100 million miles. So it's like a, you know, a couple centimeters out of a big meter stick, a couple centimeters closer. It's not a big difference. So it really doesn't do anything except to maybe moderate our winter a little bit so that the winter in the northern hemisphere would be a little less extreme than it otherwise would be because we're also a little bit closer to the sun. But what really cause, causes the seasons is two things that change that over that. First of all, during the summer, the sun is more directly overhead. Right? If you look at the sun at noon during winter, it's down there. It doesn't get up very high in the sky. If you look at it in summer, so it doesn't get quite overhead here, but it gets pretty close. It gets up to about 70 degrees. It gets pretty close to overhead, so it's beating straight down on you. So it's concentrating its light. In the summer, it's the light is much more concentrated. Same amount of light coming from the sun, but it's concentrated in a much smaller area. Well, it's going to heat us up a little bit more. Here, a larger area, spread out a lot more. Your same amount of light coming from the sun. The amount of light on each, you know, coming from the sun is still the same, but now it's spread out over a lot larger area. So you're trying to heat up a big area with the same amount of sunlight, you're not going to do as well. The other thing that changes is the length of daylight, right? You know, 8 o'clock at night, it's light right now, right? Still nice and light. In the wintertime, it isn't. Wintertime, it gets dark at what, 5 o'clock? So you also have more time during the summer. Not only is the sun's, are the sun's rays more concentrated, but there are the sun's up for a longer period of time. It might be up for 15 hours during the summer. It might be up for only 9 hours during the winter. So it doesn't have near enough time. So those two com that combination of those two things serves to cause our seasons. We have during the summer more direct sunlight. Sun is up higher in the sky beating down directly on us, heat concentrating its light. And it's up above the horizon for a longer period of time. So up there for you know, 15 hours to heat up is a lot more than heating it up for 9 hours. Now the other thing up there are just giving the points. Uh, I've sort of mentioned those before. The furthest point, the highest the sun will get above or below the celestial equator is the summer solstice. That's as high as it will possibly get. That's as high as it will get. That will be coming up during the class, right? In about a, about a month, the sun will be at its highest point. Back in December, December 21st or so, is when it's the lowest point. That's when the sun is absolute lowest in the sky at noon. So you have a chance while you're measuring the solar, ob solar uh, doing the solar observations to get the sun at its highest point. If you can make an observation right around June 20th, you should get the sun about as high as it'll possibly get in the sky. And then it crosses the celestial equator. Those are the, the spring and autumnal equinoxes, or vernal and autumnal equinoxes.
So those are just the four main points of the sun that were known to even the most ancient astronomers. Those are things like you know, Stonehenge is lined up to measure the sunrise on the first day of summer. So if you're standing at the center of Stonehenge, you actually see the sunrise over a large stone specifically designed to match that on the very first day of summer. And there's a number of other things like that. So those are actually things that were known many thousands of years ago, not just hundreds of years ago. All right, what else is the Earth doing? We've got the Earth spinning on its axis. We've got the Earth rotating around the sun. We've also got the Earth precessing. Precessing just means that the pole of the, of the Earth's axis is changing its direction. Now, if you ever watched a top spin, top spin very quickly, right? It spins very quickly, but also kind of wobbles around. The direction it's pointing kind of changes at a much slower rate. The Earth is essentially like a big top being pulled by the gravity of the sun and the moon. And that causes the position of the Earth's pole, not the amount, the 23 and a half degrees stays about the same, but it causes that direction to change very slowly. And in fact, it takes 26,000 years to make one complete circle. And what that changes is where the Earth's axis is pointing in the sky. Right now, we're right about here. We're pointing towards Polaris. Polaris is the North Star, right? It measures the direction north. Polaris hasn't always been the North Star. Several thousand years ago, you know, 2,000 years ago, year 1 AD, Polaris would have been way away from the North Pole. In fact, there wouldn't have been any star very close to the North Pole at all. It's just a coincidence right now that we happen to have a star very close to the North Pole to be able to locate it. Otherwise, it's just an imaginary point out there in space. Thousands of years before, one of the stars in Draco was actually very close to the pole. There's a long stretch here where there's hardly any, anything close. Um, coming up in, what is it, about 12,000 years or so, it'll actually be relatively close to the bright star Vega. So we'll have an even, bright, even brighter star than our pole star right now relatively close to the pole. But where that points changes slowly over time. For most of astronomical history, at least recent, it's been very close to Polaris. This would, be one, this would be about the year 2000, so we're actually approaching the closest approach will be in about, about 2100. The pole will actually be closest to Polaris, then it will start slowly fading away from there. But even several hundred years ago, Polaris was still relatively close to the North Celestial Pole. But it's only a convenience and a coincidence for us that we ever happened to have one that close. If we had been if you were taking this class 2,000 years ago, you know, it was known how the stars moved and that they moved around the North Pole, but there wasn't anything there to mark it. It's only, this, only on occasion that there happens to be a bright star that happens to be in that general direction. And that procession, that complete cycle, means that if you could come back in 26,000 years, this, the, that wobble has made one complete cycle, and we'd be back to Polaris being the close to the pole star again. But it will not always be, and that's because of another motion of the Earth, not just it spinning on its axis, not just rotating around the sun, but also precessing as well. Now, we measure a couple different years. There's also a uh, sidereal year, which is the time for the Earth to orbit around the sun relative to the stars. There's also a tropical year that follows the seasons. 
follows the, keeps the seasons the same. These are two different years. They're off slightly because of precession. So in 13,000 years or half of a precessional cycle, because we follow the tropical year, that's actually what we use. That's the year that we use and we use for timing. It, July and August will still be in the summer, but you won't be seeing the same constellations that you see. Now, in the, now Orion is a winter constellation, right? You see it in January, February, nice and prominent. But in 13,000 years, you know, come back, get a, get a stasis booth or something, and put yourself in suspended animation for, and come back in 13,000 years, you'll be able to see Orion in July and August. So that's slowly changed. That's all because of precession, slowly changing. Come back in 26,000 years, guess what? Orion will be right back where it was again. It's just that slow cyclical change that has been detected and that is caused by that Earth, the Earth's precessing. So tropical year is what we actually use. That's our year. But the sidereal year relative to the stars is what is slowly, slowly changing. The year has also given us um, major problems over history, mainly because we try to measure things in years and months and days, and none of them are related to each other. Right? The, a day is how long it takes the Earth to spin once, essentially. A month is about how long it takes the moon to go through a cycle of its phases. A year is about how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun once. Guess what? None of them are even multiples of the other. So that's where the things like leap years come in and why we have you know, unusual numbers of days and months, months in a year or days in a month. You know, some months have 28, some months have 30, some have 31 to try to balance everything out and trying to fit together these three things and then adding in leap years to try to get everything to balance and to keep the calendar, our tropical calendar, following what the constellations are actually, what the sky is actually doing. So trying to keep everything in the same place. And that's why we add in those leap years from time to time. All right, we'll start on the moon here and then I'll finish this up uh, on tomorrow before we do our lab. The moon has a cycle of phases. We see that. You go out and look at the moon. Sometimes you see it, little thin crescent. Sometimes you see a nice big full moon. Uh, sometimes you see it somewhere in between half the moon or a little bit more than half the moon filled. Those are the, that's the complete cycle of phases. That takes about 29 and a half days to complete. That's what we call the synodic month. There's also, so the synodic month is about 29 and a half days. There's also a sidereal month. Sidereal again, remember, relative to the stars. So synodic is what we see. Sidereal is relative to the stars is about 27, about a little over 27 days. That's how long it really takes the moon to orbit around the Earth once. But we don't observe that. What we really observe is the synodic month or relative to the sun. So depending on where the moon and the sun are located in their orbits, we see different portions, different amounts of the moon illuminated. And we see phases such as a crescent. Crescent phase is when just part, just less than half of the moon is illuminated. We see a quarter phase when half the moon is illuminated, exactly half. So this is less than half. This is exactly half or right around half. 
we see a gibbous phase, which is more than a half. Oh, no, greater than a half. Other way around. There we go. Greater than a half. And we see a full phase, which is the whole moon illuminated. One, the entire moon is illuminated. And that's the cycle that we see going, going through. We'll see the moon go from, as it starts to be visible in the evening sky, we'll see a very thin crescent. Over a few days, this takes about a month to go, this is about two weeks to go, this complete cycle from, crest, from, from new, I guess I should put up there, new moon would be nothing illuminated, nothing to see, <coughs> through a full phase, and then it will repeat again. You'll have a gibbous phase. All right. Try again. There we go. Gibbous phase, a quarter phase again, a crescent, and back to a new moon. So it'll go through this complete cycle of phases. Here the moon is getting larger or more illuminated. Here it's getting smaller or less illuminated each time. So as you look at it, here the moon is starting very thin and getting thicker and thicker and thicker up to a full moon and then it will slowly get less and less illuminated. This is what we call waxing. These are waxing phases, meaning we're seeing more of it each time, each night. So if you go out and look at the moon and you see a crescent in the evening today and go back and look at it tomorrow, it's going to be a little bit thicker crescent. Go back the next day, it's going to be a little bit thicker. If you go and look at that each day, you'll see a constant until it's up to a quarter phase. That'll take it about a week from the time you first see it. Another week will get you to a full phase, quarter, and new again. When you get to the other side, we call that the waning. That's getting a little bit less each time. And really the phases are just due to the sun or the, the earth moon moving around the earth. Sometimes when the moon is in the same direction, right, we're looking from above here, here's the earth and the moon is off this direction, half of the moon is still going to be illuminated by the sun, but it's the half that's pointing away from us. We're never going to see it. Other times, the moon is going to be behind us as it moves around. Half the moon is still illuminated, but that, and that's the whole half we're seeing. In between, we get all of the other phases. So what I'll do is I'll come back, I'm going to go ahead and stop there and I'm going to come back and pick up on the phases tomorrow and we'll finish up uh, chapter zero and then get on to uh, probably one and two by, well get, in, get into one maybe tomorrow and then pick up to finish up one by Wednesday or so. So, Any questions? I'm going to go ahead and stop right there so it's a, it's a good, good breaking point. So don't go running off and drop, we've only got five so hopefully, you'll, hopefully we'll get some nice, some interesting stuff coming up. So. Otherwise, if no questions, I will see everybody tomorrow.